0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll begin reading at verse 32. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created man on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire, as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war? By a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire, Because he loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands, which I'm giving you today, so that it may go well with you and that your children after you and your children after you, and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. Thus far, reading from Deuteronomy. We'll turn now to the New Testament, to Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Our text this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 6, the verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, listen, listen up, okay? Because the message that is for you this morning is very important. It's crucially important when the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, eternal son, one who gave his life for your salvation, when he tells you what the greatest commandment is, then you need to listen. This is important. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. Love for God is at the very center of life in covenant relationship with God. It was when Moses addressed Israel on the plains of Moab before going into the land of Israel. It was when our Lord Jesus Christ repeated That command, and it is today as well. So, listen up. Hear. This is important. Love is at the center of life and covenant relationship with God. That's our theme this morning, and we'll consider loving God exclusively, expansively, and constantly as we work through our text from Deuteronomy 6, the verses 4 through 9 this morning. This section... Is famously known as the Shema. That Shema is the first word in Hebrew. It's that word here. And that word here means it functions much the same way as listen. Listen up. It's a way of alerting people to say this is very important. Teachers, communicators, those who want to get across a message have many different things to say, but when they come to the the crucial thing, they'll often say, okay, and here's one important thing that you need to remember. If you forget everything else from what you hear, this is the one thing that you need to hear in order to sort of set a hierarchy or a priority in the minds of their listeners so that they don't walk away with nothing, but at least they get this. Well, that happens here. Here, O Israel, listen up. This is important. And this word doesn't mean just here. It's not clean out your ears. Get your ears checked. Make sure they're functioning properly. No, of course, you know that. If you tell a child, if you say, hey, listen to me, you're not concerned that their ears aren't working. You're concerned that maybe something between their ears and their mind, or maybe their their mind and their heart, maybe that's not functioning well. You know their ear is working, but you want them to obey. That's what it means. Listen means obey. One commenter On this first word says to hear in in the Hebrew language is the same thing as to obey, especially in covenant contexts such as this. That is to hear without putting into effect. The command is to not hear at all. So listen up, obey. This is the most important thing. So hear this. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's the important thing. And, of course, what follows. But this is the first part. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is important. And this is important for us to know as well. Most of us would probably know what the greatest command is. But there's this preamble, there's this part that comes before, and it's crucially important as well. And so, let's hear what it says. It says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We'll break that up into three parts, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We'll consider each part briefly here, the Lord, the Lord in all capital letters, the name Yahweh. The personal, the covenant name of God is how this begins. This is the name that God had revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, as he would reveal himself to his people Israel, stuck there under in slavery in Egypt. And God would say to them, I am who I am. That's my name. I am who I am. I am the Lord, Yahweh. That's what Yahweh means. I am. Communicates God's faithfulness to his covenant, because as the people of Israel were slaving there under the Egyptians, they were far away from the land that God had promised to them. They were far away from the the opportunity to worship that God had promised to them. And so God came to them and said, I have not forgotten you. I'm not a God who changes. I am who I am. I am faithful. And I remember my promise, and now I'm going to deliver on that. I'm going to redeem you out of Egypt and bring you into the promised land. And Israel, of course, saw this incredible redemption, and we recounted that in Deuteronomy 4. This incredible redemption in which God, as Moses describes there, took one nation right out of another one, took a a nation of slaves right out from over their masters, took them through the Red Sea across a desert for 40 years and brought them into the promised land, feeding them, supplying them with water, giving them what they needed the entire time, and so showing to them his incredible faithfulness. Who is the God who does that? The Lord, Yahweh, I am. And he is our God. These words, our God, are also very covenantal. They they reflect that relationship that God has with his people. They represent one half of that commitment that God makes when he establishes a covenant. When he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And so as Israel and so as we today speak of our God, we reflect that, that choosing that God has done. That God has chose us to be his people. So that we can say back to God that He is our God. So when God speak, people speak of our God, they're not suggesting that there are other gods. Okay, He's our God, and those people have their God, and those people have their God. That He's the, the only one for them, as a husband, for example, might speak about His wife, my Wife, she's mine among all the other wives in the world she's my one and only wife but that's not what israel is saying here what they're referencing is god's sovereign and gracious choice that god has chosen them to be his people he is our god because he's chosen us the lord our god the lord is one A very important and rich phrase, the Lord is one. Very succinct, concise, and as such phrases can be, a little hard to understand sometimes. If you were to walk up to a stranger and tell them that the Lord is one, they probably wouldn't understand what you mean. What do you mean the Lord is is one? Some understand this as an expression of God's unity and unchanging nature. So God is not mixed. God is, is himself. God is entirely separate from and sovereign over his creation. He is one. And so even as we see the New Testament unfold much more clearly, the Trinity, we see the Trinity held together by this rule that God is one. That's one explanation of this phrase. Another explanation says that the Lord is the one and only God. Your footnote in the NIV has a number of these different possibilities. And one of them is the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. That he's the the one God and there is no other. Well, both of those explanations are true in themselves. It's true that God is one. He's unmixed. He's united. And it's also true that he is the only God. Both are true, but the second, I think, most captures what this phrase is saying and captures the entire scope of the book of Deuteronomy as it's emphasized over and over and over as it's made clear in the very first commandment you shall have no other gods before me. And it was repeated in our reading of Deuteronomy 4.35. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. He is the only God. And so this is the preamble that reflects God's faithfulness to his promises, reflects God's sovereign Choosing of a people to be his own, establishing his covenant with them, and his exclusivity as the only, the one and only God. And so these words are not just something that's said, sort of an incantation before you get to the, the good part. The command, love the Lord your God. No, these are absolutely crucial in providing the context of that command. They they are the foundation. This is the truth. The truth of the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, is expressed in 1 John 4 verse 19. In this way, we love because he first loved us. The command is to love. But God has first set his affection out of his faithfulness upon us and revealed himself to us as the only God. Sometimes people have the idea that the Old Testament gives commands and laws. It just lays out all kinds of laws under which God's people are are burdened and become miserable so that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ can come. The grace of God can appear and and. God can release them from all those commands. But that is not true. It's true that God's people felt the burden of that, of God's commands. But while the fullness of grace did appear in Jesus Christ, his grace was implicit in every command that God gave in his word. As he first says, The Lord, our God, the Lord is one with these three parts of that preamble. God reveals himself as the gracious and loving God before he gives the command to love. Or you can think of the preamble to the law that we read every Sunday. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. I've saved and redeemed you. You're not slaves. You're not slaves under Egypt. You're not slaves under my law. You're free. Now devote yourselves to me. So all of God's commands come in the context of his prior commitment in love to us. They come to us, brothers and sisters, as as baptized children. Isn't it beautiful? The sacrament of baptism. that That seal... And sign of God's prior commitment to us. when before we're even able to understand, it is acknowledged and confirmed to us that we belong to God. As the children of believers are baptized. But it's not only to the children of believers and to believers themselves that God has shown his prior commitment God has shown this to this whole world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The son of man must be lifted up so that the whole world will see and believe God has shown in Jesus Christ his prior commitment of love to this world. Many people and the objections that they raise to coming to faith, to coming to Christianity, is they say, I don't want to live under all those rules. Christian life seems to be, well, you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this. And it's true, the Lord gives us many commands. They're, they're given in grace, they're for our good, but there are many commands. But we would say to that person, the commands aren't what is important. The commands will come out of a heart of love. But first, look at God and consider what he has already done in love. How he's already sent his son so that if you repent and believe, your sins will be washed away. So that you will be saved. God has created you in his image. God has shown his love to this world. God showed his prior commitment to Israel through the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4. So as Moses gives these commands, as they sit outside the land of Israel, and he can recount just one or two chapters earlier, remember how the Lord took you out. Remember, God has shown his prior commitment of love. He's shown his power. He's shown his faithfulness. He's shown his choosing. You're standing here today because God is the loving and faithful God who has saved you. Well, how much more can't we say that we've seen God's prior commitment of love in the person of Jesus Christ. In his faithfulness to his covenant promises, God sent his son to make atonement for his people. God revealed his faithfulness. God revealed his election, his choosing, and his exclusivity. He's the only God that that would or has or would ever do this. Send his son, Jesus Christ, faithfulness to his promises made so long ago to save sinners like us and to bring them into his own family to be his children. This is what he's accomplished through Jesus Christ. So we have God's new covenant made, established through the blood of Jesus Christ, not the blood of of burnt offerings, not the blood of the sacrifices in the temple, but through the blood of Jesus Christ, redemption accomplished and applied in Christ. And so God has shown his grace to us, a grace that calls for response And this response, brothers and sisters, is not to be assumed. You may know the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God. You may heartily embrace it. But that is not enough. In our reading in Mark 12, the Lord Jesus has this interaction with the teacher teacher says what's the greatest commandment jesus says it's to love the lord your god with all your heart soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself and the man agrees with him yes that is the greatest commandment but then what happens jesus says to the teacher you are not far from the kingdom of heaven you are not far you know the greatest commandment you heartily believe it but you are not there yet why is he not there yet Why not say, yes, of course, you understand the kingdom of God. Now, love the Lord your God. It's because he does not yet know Jesus Christ as his Lord and as his Savior. He has not yet repented of his sins and come in faith to the cross of Christ. There to be welcomed into the kingdom of the Father. Repent. and Follow Jesus Christ. He is the way into the kingdom, into salvation, and into the Father's love. And so do you know the grace that God has shown in Jesus Christ? You may know the greatest command, but do you know Him who fulfilled the greatest command for you? Look to Jesus Christ. See in Him God's prior commitment of love to this whole world and yes, to you and believe in him. So we're called to love God exclusively. We're also called to love God expansively. There's only one proper response to the faithful, sovereign and exclusive love of God and that's love for God. There's only one response to that love which comes from heaven and is divine. It is love in response. This is what love does. It reciprocates. Love always calls for response. But yet, at the same time, notice that this is a necessary demand, a necessary love. This love is a legal demand. It is set here, this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind with all your strength is set in the context of, of a legal and binding document, a covenant. God is saying, I, yes, I've saved you. Yes, I've shown you my love. And by doing that, I've made you my own. But when you're my own, you're my own. You're bound to this. You have to love the Lord your God. That's the greatest command. Not the greatest option that you have. Not the greatest possibility. It's the greatest command. Demand on your life that you love the Lord your God. You see, that's the nature of love. There's no halfway with love. There's no halfway measures. To, to love half-heartedly, to, to be in the covenant and say, okay, I sort of love the Lord, is no love at all. God calls for an active and a, and a willing and a, and a joyful love. When he says, hear, obey, O Israel, he's looking for the right kind of response. If, you have any, have had any interaction with children? Maybe you've taught them. Maybe you've raised them. Maybe you are one. You know how, how this can look. You can, you can just see it on a child. Sometimes you call them to hear, to listen, to obey, and they do. They are happy to do what you call them to do. And other times you call them to obey and they sort of go, okay. And they drop their shoulders, and they drag their hands down as far as they can, slouching their back. And they, they physically reveal the half-heartedness of their obedience. This is what we can sometimes do in our lives as we live in covenant with God. But it's not what God calls us to. He doesn't call us to half-hearted, slouching, slumping Obedience, it calls us to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind, with every aspect and element of your being, with everything that you have as expressed in heart, soul and strength. Heart speaks about the, the totality of your nature. So the heart in the Bible does everything. The heart is everything. If you say, I, I give my heart in the Bible, in the language, and the context, and the culture of the Bible, you're giving your everything to that task. And, and the soul, the soul is the essence of life. The soul it is the, the vitality of everything that you have. So your your whole nature, all your vitality, every aspect of your life and that last word, all of your strength is actually simply the word very in the original. A very interesting word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your very. What does that mean? Well, it it gives the sense of of effort. Of every Extra bit of anything that you have, all of your your very, all of your your extra mile. Give that to the Lord, if you're going to give yourself to anything, give that extra effort, give it to loving the Lord. And so that triplet gives us strong comprehensiveness, the kind of comprehensiveness that brother and sister, you never arrive at. While well, you have a heart and a soul on this earth in this life, and extra effort, but that you always strive for—you you never attain, but you always strive for. Well, you say, "I don't get that. That would cause me to be depressed. I'm, I'm called to this kind of obedience, but I can't do it. Well, what's the point of that?" Isn't this destined to make us miserable and disappointed? So, so how do we react, how do we understand this command? Well, we go to the grace of God. You'll only understand it in the context of God's grace. And for us in the new covenant, we go straight to the heart of God's grace in Jesus Christ. As we see that God calls us to love Him with every aspect of our being, but we can't, we see in Jesus Christ someone who has who took on our flesh, who was a human just like us, yet was without sin. And so he loved God in this expansive way. And in doing so, he took upon himself the burden of perfect love because we can't. And that burden of perfect love charted a course straight to the cross where he paid the penalty for all our half-hearted, slouching, slumping efforts of love. Yes, he paid for our sin. He paid for the times when we half-heartedly did what God commanded us to do. And he paid for the times when we outright rebelled against what God had commanded us to do. Jesus Christ has loved in this expansive way. But Jesus Christ is not finished there. Through his spirit, he's renewing and perfecting our love so that through slowly through, so that slowly but persistently, we are able to love him more, more and more and more as God in faithfulness to his promises works in us more and more reflecting that faithfulness that God has shown to us through faithfulness to him more and more expressing thankfulness for God's sovereign choice of us as his people. Why me? I don't know, but how thankful I am and more and more casting off selfishness and idolatry to singularly worship the one and only God. You see, outside of Jesus Christ, the greatest command to love the Lord your God and every other command that God gives is an unbearable and torturous burden. Outside of the grace and love of God, expressed to us through Jesus Christ, God's greatest command is a burden. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you will feel this burden in your life. You will be unsatisfied. You will never attain the satisfaction that you're looking for. You'll never be able to do the things that you believe you ought to do whether you rightly understand that you should love God or whether you wrongly pursue loving false idols, it will be an unbearable burden. But in Christ, there is salvation. As he removes that burden from us, there is rest and there is renewal. As he takes off that burden to love God perfectly, he works his spirit in us so that we can love God expansively. More and more and more, with all our heart, soul, and strength. In reaction to Christ's expansive love, we begin to love expansively. And we're called to love God constantly. So how does this love for God get expressed? Well, through obedience. As Moses says here, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Those who are struck by this awesome love of God are constantly asking themselves in that way that the spirit renews us. How can I live faithfully before God in the sinful world? And how can I express my devotion to God? And how can I move more and more from selfishness and idolatry towards singular love for God? The journey of love is an expansive, ever-deepening, covenantal, so in relationship to God, obedience to the God who saves in Jesus Christ. We're called to obedience. And if obedience is a car, we need somewhere to go. We need a road to drive on. Well, God, in his word, lays out that road through his commands. He says, this is the way to go. This is how you obey. This is the road before you. That's why these commands are to be upon your heart. This is the way to follow that obedience in loving God. Moses expresses that constant character in these these different ways from verses 7 through 9 in our text. The different ways of of constantly loving God. And the first one he says is to impress these commands on your children. So we we love in response to God's love and in response to God's establishing his covenant with us, we are to work out our faithfulness in covenant. That is within families, impressing on our children. So Moses speaks of the priority of the covenantal responsibility. As God works in covenant with his people, he also works through covenant. He places children into the homes of parents so that it might be there primarily in the homes of their parents that they will learn of God's prior love for them and that they will hear that call to obedience as they're raised up. That was God's command in the old covenant and it remains today in the new covenant as well. Yes, we live in the new covenant age, but this covenantal priority is still the same to impress these commands on your children. Yes, we live in a different age than they did in Deuteronomy. We live in a in a socialist age in which the the community is the one that is going to educate our children, we're told. But the priority for covenantal education has not changed. We live in an age of ever-reaching educational institutions and of ever-reaching state governments that, that want to teach our children for us. But brothers and sisters, the priority of parents to impress the commands of God on their children has not changed changed. No, it hasn't changed even where the schools are run by parents. It is still the parents who are at the forefront of this responsibility to teach their children about God's prior love for them and to show them the way and the commands of God. So the priority, not the exclusive place, not the exclusive place, of course, but the most important place for passing on God's covenant love and covenant response is at home, where parents instruct their children and raise them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. He, he repeats, essentially, this command to impress the commands of God on your children. And so, yes, school is out. The time for learning is not. In fact, parents, as you have more time and more opportunity to be with your children now, so is the greater opportunity and and responsibility to instruct them and, and discipline them and to train them up. Remember this task. Don't let anyone take it away from you. Pursue it diligently. Fill yourself with God's word so that In everything you do, you can likewise pass it along to your children. Impress them on your children. And talk about them, Moses goes on to say, constantly. So there is that period in verse 7. Impress them on your children, period. Talk about them when you sit at home. This is not only talking about education now. It's not only when you're with your children that you do this, but God's covenant people with all people are called to do this. We're called to talk about God's commands constantly. That's simply what's given there when he says, when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. So in everything that you do, talk about God's commands. This response of love for God is to constantly be on our lips or to be constantly speaking about it. I think a good analogy for the the kind of of constant chatter sort of thing that happens to a 13-year-old girl when she meets that guy that showed her some affection, spoke nicely to her, and she develops what's commonly called a crush. Have you ever had experience with a 13-year-old girl who's found herself in that situation? She has a crush on some guy. The defining thing about such a girl in such a situation is that she doesn't stop talking about him. She doesn't stop recounting to you everything that this guy said to her and everything that he did and everything that she said. And she just keeps chattering and chattering about it. She 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 meets this guy and all her friends and her family and everyone around her hears about this guy. Well, that's the kind of talking that we're called to with our love for God. We can't stop talking about him. We're infatuated with him. And we can't stop talking about his commands as we want to understand how, how do I how do I respond to him? How do I live in faithfulness to him? How do I walk on that journey that he would have me walk? So talk about God's commands. Talk about how to live your life of love before him. Talk about it in your work. And pursue, how does God's commands fit with my work? And talk about it in your leisure. Do we take a holiday from love for God? No, of course not. So, so how do we love God in our leisure? How do God's commands set my personal schedule, my priorities within my schedule? How do God's commands make our family's calendar for this month or when we go back to school? How do God's commands form my relationships? And how I walk and live in these relationships. Talk about them when you go on holidays. You go with friends or you go with family. What better time than to take the extra time to discuss the, the challenges and the questions and the insights that you've gained about life within God's covenant. Talk about them constantly. Constantly. Write them, Moses says, on your hands and on your foreheads. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. You may well know about the the Jewish practice of wearing phylacteries or tefillin. They've got these small leather boxes that they'll wear on their hands, on their wrists, or or on their foreheads, which have several verses from the Torah. And they believe that that's being done in, in obedience to this command. But, That's not what Moses means here when he says tie them as symbols on your hands and and on your foreheads. What he means is that God's law, let it be always before you. So that everywhere you walk, it's as though God's command is is right in front of you, in front of your forehead. You never get out in front of God's commands. You're always following after them. You're, You're following behind them. And before your hand does anything, God's command ought to be right there teaching you what to do so that your hand is always following God's commands. So let God's law be always before you in everything that you do. And write it. Write it. Most importantly, this command to love the Lord your God and all the commands that fall in beneath on your houses and on your gates. So in your community. Covenantal obedience is not an independent study project. It's not something that we pursue only by ourselves as we as we read God's word and then think about how to apply it. You know, covenantal obedience is a group project. This is what we do together. It's what we do together as a congregation. It's what we do together as we meet together in Bible studies. It's what we do together as we meet together as friends and as families, as home groups, in every group setting covenant obedience is what we are to be working out. It's a community project that we're all engaged with in every way, within our families, in the roles that God has given us as as parents or as children or as siblings. Within our church community, as we're all members of the body, within our broader community as well. To obey the covenant God by loving Him. And by praying earnestly and diligently seeking that love for him would grow in our community as we seek to be a light and hold out the gospel of truth. So as God loves us constantly, teaches us through his word, as he calls us into this love through the covenant relationship that he's established with us, as he reveals his love through Jesus Christ, it impacts us. And it teaches us how truly worth loving God is. And it draws us out of ourselves and into a life of love for God. Our covenant Lord and King. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web